the gospel man and his church. What do you think of when you hear the word church? What does the normal person think of when he hears the word church in the vernacular? Buildings, hierarchies, perhaps a traditional mainline denomination. Perhaps you join with me in horror as we watch the historic cathedral of Notre Dame burn uh, and see the tradition and the history that went with that. Perhaps you think of the liturgy, a liturgy of some type. Maybe it's the Roman Catholic mass that you grew up with. Maybe it's hymns. Maybe it's singing. Perhaps you think of a gathering of a people in a non-traditional way through means of, say, technology, where people will log on to Facebook and join the Facebook church. Is that how it works? Perhaps for you personally, and maybe even sadly, when you think of the word church, you think of some bad experiences, maybe some trauma from the past that happened to result. I was talking to someone just recently about abuse within the church. See, brothers, often we bring all of these experiences of church life into the context here. And we have to square up what we've experienced in the church with what God says about the church. A few years back, a pastor named Colin Smith wrote an article where he described four distorted images of the church. Certainly, we'd never say any of these distorted images out loud, but they're sort of like ways of thinking. They're subconscious. The first one was, that Colin Smith wrote, was the gas station view of the church. Gas station view of the church. What do I do? I come to church as something just to keep me going. I get my fill. I come. I get my energy. Then I leave. I, get, I come, I get my pep talk, and then I leave. No engagement. Certainly not talking to people afterwards. Secondly, besides the gas station view, he said there's the movie theater view of the church. The movie theater view of the church. I view the church as entertainment. I come watch the production. I'm watching that dude up front, and this Sunday, I like what he said. I like what Ryan wore the, uh, today. I like Drew's music. It makes me feel really good. And if you turn the, the, the lights down low enough, the lyrics don't matter too much because it's all about emotion and entertainment. Thirdly, Colin Smith described the drugstore view of the church. Do you come to the church like the drugstore where the church is therapeutic? I get a prescription to help me with my pain. I'm a victim of something, and I come to church to get my medicine to make me well and whole. Fourthly, he described the big, big box retailer. In just one stop, for me and my whole family, I get great service. Sort of like the entertainment model, except I pay my money, and me and my whole family get everything that we need to enjoy life. So those were Colin Smith's ideas of misconceptions of the church. I added two more that I thought of, which I wrote down on your sheets there. The, fr the one I thought of was the fraternal order. I viewed the church like a fraternal order. 
I come to church as a means of friendship with people that are just like me. Married, single. Kids, no kids. Seniors, young people. I come to church to be with people just like me. The difference is it's what is in common that I'm looking for. I'm simply finding someone in common. And if those relationships break down or those commonalities change, I'll just find another one. I'll go to another church down the road because it's based on me. The other image I thought of, besides the fraternal order, was the Major League Baseball game. Have you been to an Isotopes game here? That's fun. That is fun. Tradition. There is camaraderie. Kind of like the church. I come to church. There's God on one side. Satan on the other. Raw, raw, let's hear for God. Is that how we view the church? Sadly, that's often how we come to the church. And sadly, even more sad, is churches are often complicit in those distortions. Churches are often infatuated with what is relevant. Following the latest purpose-driven fad. Just hoping that you can keep your consumers coming so they don't jump ship and go to the church down the road who's also trying to draw consumers with their latest thing. You know, last assignment before I got to uh, Albuquerque, New Mexico, I show up in Shreveport, Louisiana. We ended up spending four years there. There are churches on every corner. And I'm not just talking little buildings. I'm talking major, big structures. When I showed up into my office that first day and I was getting acclimated, one of my coworkers said to me, have you checked out the churches around town? Have you checked out the churches? What was his motivation? He was trying to be kind and friendly, but if you want to meet some needs, go to the churches around here. This church has this program. I like this church because they offer date nights for your, your, you and your wife to go out. But don't worry, Dave. You don't have to commit to anyone. You just you take advantage of all of these. So what, what is the commonality of all of these things? It's about me. It's about I'm the consumer and you provide me a service. My friend, by the way, he was shocked to learn that what I was looking for was actually doctrinal fidelity and healthy model of what a church is. In all of these distorted images, we're not seeing it. We're not thinking of the church as God does. And the focus of the service is on me and my needs. I don't see the church as the way scripture defines it. So the problem is in my thinking, how I am even approaching the church, how I'm even considering it. We have iPhones, right? Many of us have one. I have one in my pocket. We have the iChurch. We have the Me Church, where churches are, are feeding this desire that it's all about me. So if you remember even one thing today, even just one thing, is that we need to reorient our thinking or t- according to what Scripture says the church is and what the church does. Pastor uh, Tony Payne wrote a book recently. It's more like a booklet called How to Walk to Church. In fact, we sold it in our bookstore here at Claris just recently. 
I enjoyed that booklet because he gives a word picture. He's not describing, you know, living close to the church so you can walk to church every day, what you wear, how to give a nice greeting to the person as you show up to church. He's not talking about where you sit or even your involvement in the church, but a word picture of how we even approach the church service. How do you walk to church? You approach church and the corporate gathering of the local church with anticipation, with intentionality about what you're about to do and how you fit into the whole. That's the main point of this morning. You'll see on outline, uh, uh, handouts on the outline in front of you, the gospel man must intentionally reorient his thinking to what scripture says the church is and does. And as we do that, where do we turn? We turn to Scripture. We turn to the Bible. We turn to truth. We've used this term gospel man to say real manhood in God's eyes is based on a person understanding the truth of the gospel. What three words did we describe the gospel man? He is converted. He is growing. And he is serving. What's the context for all of that? The local church. A church like Desert Springs Church. So what is the church? When you scour the scriptures, you can come up with a lot of definitions. One definition I read that I think is pretty good is the church is the body of people called by God's grace through faith in Christ to glorify him by serving him in the world. Or simply, another author wrote, the church is the community of all true believers, all those who are truly saved. See, not everybody that is coming through the front doors of Desert Springs Church is truly saved. He's truly converted. Perhaps that's you here today. Someone brought you today. You're still, not, you're still putting the pieces together. And the first thing I want you to know, the church is not just coming to a building, coming to an event. The church is about God's supernatural work within your heart where you recognize who Jesus is and you're converted by his grace. You see, Jesus founded the church. He said things like, I will build my church. I will build my church. See, I believe that the church began on the day of Pentecost with the coming of the Holy Spirit. And from that day forward, God builds his church. God does it. We study in the book of Acts with Ryan that the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. And what is that based on? It's based on the truth of the gospel. And that's what we're to hold to. The church is to hold to truth. That's why Paul told Timothy in the book of 1 Timothy, Timothy was a pastor in Ephesus, that the church of God is the pillar and support of the truth. So turn now, if you would, there's Bibles in front of you, if you, don't, if you didn't bring your Bible today, to the book of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians in the New Testament. Paul is writing to a church at Ephesus, most likely. Um, and in this wonderful book, the church is one of the prominent themes of the entire book. The Apostle Paul opens the book, if you'll look at chapter 1, verse 1, and he writes it to the saints. 
who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. What are saints? Saints are not super Christians who lived a great life and performed a miracle, da, da, da. Saints are any converted Christian. The word is holy ones. Not because some church deemed them to be so, but because God has declared them holy. God has made them holy. God has regenerated them. And it results in a life of, as it says there, faithfulness. Faithfulness to the truth, faithfulness to Jesus Christ. Besides the word saints in Ephesians 1, Paul will go on throughout the book of Ephesians and use several different, many different uh, word pictures to describe the local church. So what we're going to do this morning is do a survey of five passages in the book of Ephesians and see how should a converted man think about the local church. So we'll kind of trace this across Ephesians. And I invite you, if you want to do a deeper dive on any one of these, be my guest. Please do so. But we'll kind of hit the wave tops this morning. Though there's many ways that Paul refers to the church, as we're going to see, it will shape how we think about it. Now, before we get into the outline, we need to think about a key subject. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 19. Paul is praying, and he refers to this word church uses this word church, and he's praying for them. Verse 19, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? Now, in chapter 1, he had just spent lots of time talking about all the blessings in Christ, and then he prays for them that they would have power, immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he... Who is the he there? God the Father worked in Christ when he raised him, Jesus Christ, from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Verse 22. And he put all things and gave him, Jesus Christ, as head over all things to the church. Stop right there. Everything that we talk about this morning flows from that. Jesus is head of the church. Jesus is head of the church. He was given to the church as its head. John Stott wrote in his commentary, great little commentary in Ephesians, he whom God gave to the churches as head was already the head of the entire universe. Last Sunday, we celebrated Resurrection Sunday. Every Sunday, we celebrate the resurrection. But you all, do you also think that he was propelled in glory and sits at the right hand of the throne of on high? And everything is under his feet. Verse 22 says, The Father put all things under his feet. One writer said, when we think about this idea of spiritual gifts that we all have within the church. He says, the best spiritual gift to the church is the gift of Christ as head of the church. See the centrality of Christ? See how he is to be the focus. Do you remember at Claris, if you were at the conference, who is at the center of the lampstands? 
which are the churches, Jesus Christ. He is at the center. When I found this local church, when I came to Desert Springs Church, one of the first things I wanted to do was to find out what does this church believe, particularly the leaders of this local church believe about what a pastor is. And I was so thankful to learn as I went to lunch with these guys that they saw themselves as under-shepherds, not the head guy of like a CEO. They were under-shepherds to Jesus Christ, the chief shepherd. They understood their role. So we want to continue to think about Christ as we go on and distinguish false views of the church versus biblical views of the church. So in your outline, as we go through it, we're going to distinguish a wrong view of the church versus a right view of the church. Firstly, number one, we need to view the church not as an organization. You see that? But as an organism. What's the difference between those two? Between an organization and an organism. An organism is li- living. It's breathing. Verse 23 says, the church, which is his body. Stop there. The church, which is his body. This answers the who. Who is the church? The church is the body of Jesus Christ. There are churches spread throughout the globe with different names over the top. And within those churches, there's people that come. Often, those people that come remain unconverted. That may be some of you here today. You have not been genuinely converted. You attend with your wife. You're curious about the things of church, but you're not born again. You have not been united to Jesus Christ. You are therefore not united to the local church. It's not by baptism. It's not by the Lord's Supper. It's not even by coming into the church that makes you part of the body of Christ. How do you become part of the body of Christ? By repentance and belief in the truth of the gospel. What is the gospel? God. God who existed from all eternity created the world and all mankind. Adam. Adam rebelled against him and that sin nature is passed down to us as men, as people. so that we are born in sin and we continue in sin. So God, man, thankfully, Christ. God, who is rich in his mercy, sent his son, the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ, to live the perfect life, to die a sacrificial, substitutionary death for those that would believe on him. And if you're here today, by simple repentance and faith in what Jesus has done for you, you can be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. We call this the great exchange. I get his righteousness, and Christ takes upon him the the sin penalty that I deserve. This is the glorious truth of the gospel. And when you believe that, when you trust in that, and are reconciled to God, God unites you to Christ, and you become part of his body. That's how you do it. In the book of Ephesians, in chapter 1, Paul uses this phrase over and over again, which Scott Minema talked about a few sessions ago, like, in him. 
in Christ. That's referring to this union that I have with Jesus Christ. Not only that, but we we are mystically united to one another as brothers in Christ. So you're now part, if you've done that, you're part of the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 10 says, referring to the Lord's Supper, when you gather for the Lord's Supper, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So we are not just individually taking the bread, but we're doing it as a congregation, corporately, reminding us of the truth of the gospel. So when you think of the word organization, you might think of a business model. You might think of a club. Clubs are organizations. You might think of a social group or a political group or a society. In one sense, you could say the church is like an organization, but it is so much more. We are Christ's body on earth. He is at the right hand of God in heaven. And the church is here on earth, and we are united to him spiritually. And we are a community. That word community is pretty fashionable today, isn't it? People, even unbelievers, understand the value of community. You see it a lot in the elite media today, talking about the LGBTQ community. As though sexual desire and gender questioning forms community. So community is recognized as a good thing. Even Webster's recognizes community. It defines it as a unified body of, of people, of individuals. And it's defined by common interests, common and common uh, characteristic, a common history, a social state or condition, or even society at large. Even the world understands the value of togetherness. I often hear uh, my boys interact with other boys their age, and what will they say? Hey, brother, how's it going? And that's a term that, uh, in vogue. See, young men, they long for transcendental belonging. Hey, brother, that's why I believe we have a gang problem. But for us in the church, our commonality is defined by Jesus Christ. We hold to a common bond, a common confession that Jesus Christ is Lord. Just like the Trinity exists in communion, God has designed you and I to live in community with one another. You see, each day I get up every day and I put on the same thing every day. I put on my uniform. And what does that uniform do in the military? I'm identifying with the other fellow members of the profession of arms, entrusted to defend our country. It forms an identity. So we have to think about the group and how I fit into that group when I put on the uniform. Even more so within the church. We don't wear external uniforms. We're defined as the church with invisible markers. Our identity is based on the truth of the gospel as revealed in scripture. So does this impact how you think? Or is, do you take the view, it's just me, my Bible, and Jesus. That's all I need. But God has designed you to think corporately, not just individually. 
Think of all the prayers that are written in the Bible. They are written to churches. All the books that we have in the Bible, Paul's letters are written to churches. Even the Lord's Prayer, what does it say? Our Father. It's corporate, not just individual. Yet so often I sit back in my own little world and it's so easy to criticize and say, up, oh, the church should be doing that. Up, oh, the church should be doing that. And be critical of its leadership. And I'm just sitting back as an autonomous evaluator, kind of like a sideline critic, but I'm not personally committed to the local church. Now look at verse 23. Note the word fullness. Verse 23, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This brings us to our second point. We shouldn't think of the church as faddish or fad-driven, but as filled. So you can write the word filled. First blank of number one was it's an organism. Number two, it's filled. It's not by techniques or fads that define us, like clothing styles that go in and out of, of being uh, exciting, or even musical taste. One of the th sad things I heard recently was someone who left DSC, and the first thing they cited was, we just love the music at DSC. I understand what you're saying. I love the music too, but is that really the main thing? Christ is the fullness of the church. His gospel drives growth and progress, and Christ governs every aspect of church life. We must continually put Christ before us as a church and maintain his centrality in the local church. As Christ is head of the universe, he's head over all things, he is especially head. He is uniquely head over the local church. His presence is specially and graciously provided in the local church. Nothing is like it in all the earth. The church. So when I come somewhere and I come to a new city, what's the first thing I do? I look for a church. That's top of my agenda. So this word fullness. The Bible talks about us being filled by often the term Holy Spirit. That we're filled by the Holy Spirit. In fact, Paul talks about in chapter 1 about after they heard the preaching of the gospel and they believed it, they were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. But here we have a different sense. The church has the fullness of Jesus Christ. In a sense, the Christ is in his fullness is in the church, but also we are growing into his fullness, as we're going to read about in a minute. To fill is a metaphor for extending influence or rule over. And in the church, Jesus is doing that. And we are to express him in the world. Now look at where we're coming from in these particular verses. In verse 18, Paul is praying that they be filled with power. Uh, Harold Honer, which is a good, he's a good Ephesians commentator, writes this. God was demonstrating his power in that he gave Christ to the church as head over everything. The church, his body, is being filled with his moral excellence and power. Christ is filling all and in all. That is, he's completely filling them, everyone who are truly his. Power. 
There is power there. Not like Thor's hammer, where I individually get to whack everything that stands in my way. No, that's not the picture here. The picture is the ushering of a kingdom. And that I'm part of that glorious agenda where the king is coming in and breaking into his creation, and I'm part of that. And as I preach the gospel, the power is not inherent in me. It is, the uh, Romans says, the, the gospel, in the gospel is the power of God. The kingdom is coming. All right, now number three. In, uh, in America, we're often divided, right? We're divided by politics, by class, even the lightning rod of race and ethnicity. But instead, we should view the church, number three, not as divided, but as a dwelling. As a dwelling. Write that down for number three. We're not individual little huts in a tribal community. No, the Bible says if you are in Christ, we are one building. Who is the church? Paul uses a word picture of a building. We are the dwelling of God in the spirit. Look at chapter 2, verse 19. Chapter 2, verse 19. So then you, who's the you there? Paul is speaking primarily to Gentiles. Are no longer strangers and aliens. Gentiles are no longer strangers and aliens. But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Verse 22. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So this church includes both Jews and Gentiles. It's fellow citizens. Paul starts mixing up his metaphors. Buildings, citizens, households. All this is to describe what God is doing in building his church. You see, in the Old Testament, God started with the nation of Israel as his people. And in this present age, a partial heartening has come to Israel. And God, in a glorious agenda, is beginning a new work to gather Jews and Gentiles into what he calls the body of Christ. Think about this architectural plan that God has. What is it? What's the foundation? The apostles and the prophets is what he says. The apostles and prophets. Do we have apostles and prophets today? No. But what do we have? We have their teaching. We have the New Testament. That's the foundation of the apostles. Who is the cornerstone? Jesus Christ. The cornerstone was so important in a building. It was also called the setting stone. When you build a building, all the other stones were set in reference to that stone. So that when you build the structure, it's sound. Who is the cornerstone? Jesus Christ. Who is the foundation? The apostles and prophets, which we have in the New Testament. Who are the individual stones? You and me whether Jew or Gentile, are part of one body. Flip over with me to Colossians chapter 3, verse 11. Paul takes this idea and extends it even further. Who are part of the church? Not just Jews. And then he elaborates on what these Gentiles are. Colossians three eleven. 
whether Greek or Jews, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free man, Christ is all and in all. You see the glorious nature of the church. It's not a Lego structure of just red bricks and white bricks. It's got all different color bricks that God is building into a glorious structure called the church. Again, this goes against the grain of our culture. Our culture says, elevate your ethnicity. Elevate your familiar, familial heritage. And those things are not bad, but they're not definitional for the Christian. You received a book in front of you, uh, a little booklet, called A Biblical Answer for Racial Unity. And in that book, H.B. Charles, who was here just recently for our uh, conference, he writes this. Racial dynamics, gender differences, or cultural issues, issues do not define us as Christians. In Christ, we have become a whole new race. It's impossible for us to be one if we are focusing, focusing on anything but the Lord Jesus Christ. So Christ defines us. Number four, we should view the church not as a production, but as proclamation. This is based on Ephesians 3, verse 10, which we'll talk about in a minute. So write the word proclamation. Not as production, but as proclamation. Flip over to Ephesians chapter 3, and we'll start off with verse 8. And we'll see this is sort of related to number 3 about the Gentiles. Verse 8 says... To me, though I am the very least of the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for the ages in God who created all things. So that, verse 10, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places Verse 11, this was in accordance or according to the eternal purpose that he has re realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord. See, the wrong view is to view the church as a production. What I mean by that, as a man-made, manipulated event that you come to. No, the church sanctuary is not the theater. The theater is God's entire created order. God is the actor. God is the agent. And the church is the means. Through the church, God's wisdom of the salvation of people is being proclaimed to all of his creation. His glory, his wisdom is being proclaimed to unbelievers and even to unseen spiritual powers. Who are those people? Well, chapter 1, verse 3, chapter 6, verse 12, this is referred to the unseen realm, that is, angels, spiritual beings. God is proclaiming his wisdom like a multifaceted jewel that he is showing forth to display his glory. So it's almost like that divine megaphone that cheerleaders, is that what the megaphone, is that what it's called? Cheer megaphone. It's like if you wrote next to that megaphone, the, or on it, the church. Through that megaphone of the church, God is proclaiming his wisdom of turning sinners from every nation, language, and tongue 
to his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So we as the church are cosmic displays of his glory against the array of heavenly enemies, even uh, demons, that God is proclaiming his glory. All right, number five, moving on. We should see the church not as multiplying, but as maturing. Write the word maturing. To what purpose do we gather? Not multiplying people. That's God's business. God does that. And I'm not saying by that that it's not good to add to the church. But Kent Hughes wrote a book a few years back called Liberating Church from the Success Syndrome. We often measure success by how many people come to something. How many butts are in seats. Versus true spiritual growth. The maturing of the body of Christ. That's what we want at Desert Springs. We want you, all of us, to mature in the faith. Look at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. And we'll read a little bit longer text here. Four down to, uh, chapter 4, verse 11, down to 16. Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. And God gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the, we'll look at it, what's the word? Building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to mature manhood, to the measure of the statue, stature of the fullness of Christ. There's that word fullness that we saw in chapter 1. So it's something we are, but it's something we're becoming. The fullness of Christ. Verse 14. So we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Verse 15. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up every way into him who is the head. There's the word again. The head, the Lord Jesus Christ from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is a long passage, but we can kind of summarize it this way. God has given Christ as head of the church. Christ has distributed gifts in the church, and we didn't read it, but you could read about that in verse 7. Verse 11 says he appoints leaders in the church, starting again with those apostles and prophets that we have in his word, and their teaching is recorded in scripture. Verse 12, the leaders equip the members of the church. Verse 13 and 14, the members accomplish the ministry of the church. It's not outsourced to just the the elders here. We are to do the ministry of the church. And the plan results in, verse 15 and 16, the growth of the church. And that's what I want to emphasize. Growth, maturity, building itself up. And when you do that, you're guarded against any counterfeits. False gospels. Those that come with deceitful scheming. Untrue gospels. You see, the church is the primary means of your growth. And often we treat it as just a optional thing. You see, when you were saved, when you were justified in Christ, 
it, the work didn't stop there. Christ means that you continue to grow or be sanctified as a believer. One of the primary ways you do that is through the local church. Often we see in the counseling room that one of those defective areas of a man's life is something to do with his involvement or the lack thereof in the local church. In Paul's Tripp's book, How People Change, anybody read that book? Great book, How People Change. My, one of my favorite chapters is a chapter called, I love the title, Change is a Community Project. Emphasizing the collective joy of that change as a community project, he writes this. When we are in meaningful relationships with one another, we bring, each, we bring a unique perspective and experience to our knowledge of Christ's love. One person has been rescued from, from a menacing addiction. Another has been brought through some deep suffering. Still another has been sustained by God's grace in a difficult marriage. And the list goes on. When we gather to share our stories, we see a different aspect of the diamond that is the love of Christ. Together, our understanding and experience of God's infinite love becomes fuller, stronger, and deeper. Not only are we strengthened in our individual growth, but the entire body is built up into a fuller sense of the power and hope of God's grace. The Christian life is not less than individual but is so much more. Verse 16 said, From whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint which it, which, with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. That's very similar language that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 12, where he talks about the various members of the body. Paul talks about us using our gifts for the greater whole. Are you utilizing your gifts, men? There are all kinds of opportunities. How joyous it would be if the elders had a rush of men coming to them, asking them, how do I become a member of this church? How do I get to serving? How do I do this or that? How do I grow as a Christian? You can't be a spiritual island. You need the church, and the church needs you. So back to our deficient views of the church, gas station and theater and all that. Instead, what we've seen in the book of Ephesians, just by a survey, Christ is the focus as the head of the church. He's the fullness of the church. We're not defined as a church by anything but Christ and what he has accomplished in the gospel. God is declaring his wisdom through us by the salvation of sinners and our gathering together in community. Not only that, but I have a role. You have a role in the building up of the body of Christ. How are you doing, men? In conclusion, let me tell you about two men at Desert Springs Church. Bob and Peter. Bob moved to Albuquerque about a year ago. He visited the church. He likes DSC's music, but also visited around other churches. He sort of considers him part of, part, considers him part of DSC, but he also attends other churches. He really likes having that Saturday night church service down the road. Neither church knows if he's really a part of that church. He shakes the hand of one of the pastors from time to time, just in case he ever needs to reach out to him. His wife attends DSC regularly, 
And she hasn't become a member either because Bob's kind of floating back and forth in indecision. She wants to get to know some of the folks at DSC, so she becomes more involved attending a women's Bible study and starts to get more involved while her husband, Bob, kind of stands in the periphery. That's Bob. The other one, Peter. Peter arrived in Albuquerque, moved about a year ago. Knowing the importance of the local church, Peter was trying to lead his family to a healthy church. He checked out different churches' doctrinal convictions. He researched their affiliations, their statements of belief. And within two weeks of arriving to Albuquerque, he asked the pastors to go to lunch and ask them questions. What were your doctrinal convictions? What is your philosophy of ministry? He knew he needed to commit to membership before enjoying the privileges of membership. He also knew that the leadership was accountable for the sheep, according to Hebrews 13, that they had to give account for souls. So it wasn't just about him, but it's about how do I fit? And I need to be underneath the leadership of other godly men. So he completed Casey Casey right away. He was interviewed by the elders to make sure he was a converted Christian, and he was affirmed as a member. Peter's life was busy, though. He wanted to be faithful to Christ in his family and his work and his church. Due to his work schedule, Peter couldn't take advantage of everything that the church offered. But he focused on the right things. He focused on the gathering of the local church, church enjoying the preaching, uh, coming for baptism and the Lord's Supper. He prioritized those things. He joined a community group and goes to lunch with other guys in his group. No, he can't take part in everything, but one of his greatest joys is to be with his little children twice a month. You see, Peter volunteers twice a month to teach the little toddler Sunday school. He remembers when his kids were toddlers and how much it meant to him to have other people build into his children's lives. Bob, Peter, what's the difference? Yes, these men are both fictional. I made them up, but I've seen it as I've traveled around churches in our country. What's the difference between these two men? Peter saw what God said about the church and believed it. And he took his own individual responsibility to that church seriously. So all of this, men, boils down to two questions. Number one, are you a member of the body of Christ? How do you do that? By repentance and trust in what Jesus did. You see, there's in the people of God, there's wheat and there's tares. So first of all, are you a converted person? Have you trusted in Christ? Number two, to use Tony Payne's description, how will you walk to church? How will you walk to church? Will you think this way? In closing, Acts 20, 28, the Apostle Paul is saying goodbye to the churches, uh, to the elders at the church at Ephesus, the very book that we've been reading about. And the Apostle Paul says this in Acts 20, 28. He tells the elders at that church, shepherd the church of God, listen to this, which he purchased with his own blood. Do you view that church that way? Do you view our church that way? 
what kind of difference would that make on Saturday night when you're getting a plan together for Sunday? If you said, I'm gathering with the saints at Desert Springs Church. I'm gathering with the body of Christ. I'm gathering with those who have been bought with the blood of Christ. What kind of difference would that make? That changes my perspective. The hymn that we're about to sing. The church is one foundation. It says in a particular verse there, from heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. And with his blood he bought her and for her life he died. Jesus died for the church. This changes how I view the church. Like he laid down his life for the church. I want to lay down my life for the church. Let's pray together. Our great God, our Father, we thank you so much for your Son. We praise you for your glorious agenda of the salvation of sinners and bringing them into the body of Christ. We thank you that we are united to him and that our life is his And it's so different than every other religion that says, I have to work up to attain some kind of righteousness. Rather, we are declared righteous. And Ephesians 2 says that we are actually seated with Christ in heavenly places. Lord, change how we think about the church. May it not be just some kind of optional extension that I add on to all that I have going on in my life but rather may I be a faithful member of this local church, contributing to the needs within the local church, submitting and obeying to my leaders, for they keep watch over my souls, over our souls. And Lord, continue to use me, use us, for the furtherance of this ministry. We pray this by your power and strength, in Jesus' name.